Longing for the Ancient Way, counting from the first night, talk number eight. Kisei's talk yesterday helped me understand why I love the Zen tradition so much. <clears throat> this is uh, one of Keith Dalman's uh, translations. And it's from the um, the Tibetan tradition. And the Tibetan tradition is a wonderful tradition. I'm looking very much forward to seeing Tenzin Wangyal in November. Keith will be coming next year. And this, the, the insights and the way they talk is, is just um, splendid. But let's compare a little. Even the sublime self-envisioned forms in Buddha fields and the display of wholly appropriate activity and present awareness are contained in the self-sprung space that is neither unity nor disunity. Luminous mind comprises the entire universe in samsara and nirvana, all of it non-composite, empty clarity, like sun-dashed space, all of it the vast, pristine, self-sprung matrix of the now. The vast matrix of the mind's nature, an unchanging sky-like space, with the creativity of luminous mind indeterminate in its display, governs all the lifestyles of samsara and nirvana, the single practice of non-action underpinning it all. So nothing is extreme, nothing excluded or extraneous, where nothing can stray from the reality of the luminous mind. Because everything arises as unity, all good, spo- all good spontaneity, spontaneity, as an all-inclusive, unrivaled, supreme embodiment, the greatest of the great is the all-good intrinsic spaciousness, like an emperor who majestically embodies the state the whole of samsara and nirvana is passively unmoving. And glorious language. Very full, very uh, round. Um, and different times, it's inspiring. But the Zen tradition has a different way of pointing at the same thing. Look at the floor. Experience your own breath. It is pointing at exactly the same mind of all those words. And when we do it, the the mystery is sheathed in clothes and floor and breath. And in this other, it's a flurry of words and grandiloquent phrases that really becomes a kind of persiflage that that makes us think there's something out there that's grandiloquent, that is so superlative. If only I had seen it clearly, I'd be like the sun rising behind the clouds, bright and clear and luminous. The tradition says, look at the floor. Feel your own breath. Feel it intimately, closely without ideas of what it is or isn't. Allow the true nature to reveal itself. In the Zen tradition, we also really value uh, the importance of a particular individual's struggle and endeavor to actually realize the way that you can't 
describe the indescribable. No matter how many words, no matter how beautiful they are, no matter how eloquent, golden, and pristine they are, that which can't be known, which is before words, which is the great mystery, can only be hinted at. So, in some traditions, they talk in this marvelous way. Any of you who've read some of the great Mahayana sutras, you know, they talk about all the Buddha realms and all the Buddha beings and the great cosmos and the great chiliacosm all coming forth magnificently from a lotus flower, which, you know. But it's all pointing at the same mind that is aware of your breathing right now. Now, it's not just that our idea of what that mind is, or if we look at what we think of the breath and our idea about it, that's not exactly what's, what's talked about here. But the truth reveals itself. The truth is the, the ultimate is, so to speak, reveals itself in everything. Everything comes from the same source. It has an origin at all. So, in this particular tradition, we try to look into something that is intimate, that is common to everybody, that is available, that is not something that gets us off in our mind thinking, There's something somewhere out there. Even the great, all these great, 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 great teachers and teachings, they all come back and say, you know, it's right here. So, Wang Chimpa, Keith Dalman, Tenzin Wangyal. Tenzin Wangyal is a very practical, very down-to-earth person. He really will present this material in a way that is very accessible, just like we have during Sishin. It has to be seen directly. It has to be experienced directly. Now, it's not just a matter of sitting and having some experience. It also has to function. So, we have some insight, and we'll talk about that in a minute, some insight but then that insight has to be revealed in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. It's not as though, as I've often said, that we are some kind of <clears throat> you know, enlightened zombie. That we have some great experience and we just sit there decaying. It doesn't work like that. Everything that we have any wisdom about, everything we touch inside, has to be expressed, has to be lived, has to be offered. So, we practice. And we practice, as many people are doing, in all the different ways of working with body and spaciousness and all the oneness and koans and seeing the ubiquity of uh, awareness. And we have some sense of the spaciousness of our own being based upon our direct apperception. 
with some sense of the, the oneness of self and other based upon a little glimpse that we may have had <clears throat> where we watch all things arise out of nowhere. Whatever our particular lots of different experiences people are having. Or we have the experience of being right up against the wall and just sitting right there against the wall. Can't go forward, can't go back. The truth includes all of that. All of that. And our practice is to rest in the biggest awareness that we have. So if you're aware of being completely, utterly stuck, and you feel that stuckness, not as a story, but as a visceral, a visceral um, experience, as a palpable experience, or you touch the spacious mind, and you have the awareness of spacious mind not as a mental construct, not as some idea, but as something that is spacious, that's right here in this room, that's right here in this body. Or all the other different insights people have. Our insight then has to penetrate the kitchen, the garden, the office. Now, if we have some sense of the spaciousness of our own being or the emptiness of our own being. There's lots of different ways of, that people can touch it. There's no one way. It's one of the things you read some of the, the great Tibetan teachers and it sounds like, oh yeah, you've got to have that experience. You've got to see it in that way. It doesn't work that way. If there is a seeing, then we see through that seeing. If there is no seeing, that's a different matter. But all of us want to see. We want to know. There's a knowing, then it comes through our particular filter. If we go beyond knowing and go beyond seeing, then what's the point? And it's possible to go beyond knowing and seeing. But as long as we know and see, as long as we have some experience, it comes through our particular DNA, our particular way of being, our texture of our life, the filters that we have about how we view things. So everybody's experience is different. We look around this room and we would not mistake any one person in here for another. Everybody looks different. Everybody's mind is different. Everybody has different ways of perceiving the truth. And each of those ways has got to be the right way, the vital way. The vital way for the particular person who's experiencing it. It has to be the vital way because it is what is there and what is there needs to be looked at and looked in, and felt in, and felt through, and allowed the truth to reveal itself through your mind. So let's say that we have a little sense of the spaciousness of, uh, of our own being. You know, we try to be just sit here, sit here focusing. I've asked many people to do. You feel the body. You <clears throat> feel the body part. You become anchored. You begin to focus your mind. You're able to have some control over your, what your mind is doing able to be here, feel the whole body all at once, begin to see how spacious it is, begin to see it has no particular shape, begin to see that the body is not bounded by this, but the awareness of body is larger, and we have a little taste of the spaciousness of our own being, spaciousness of our own mind. It's nice. 
our task then is to be aware of that spaciousness. It's not a thing, but it is an awareness. Or let's say you have a profound uh, understanding or even a semi-profound, or let's say a not quite profound understanding of impermanence. So if you really have an understanding of permanence, then you hold that awareness of impermanence. That in a way that becomes part of your focus. Or let's say you have a little experience of the, the absolute pristine nature of this moment, the, the gift of this life. Wonderful. You hold that awareness, not of the experience, but you hold that truth as part of your awareness. And then, because things are not separate, you bring those awarenesses into the kitchen, the office, you know, driving your car, wherever. So that we're eating a meal, and we're not just you know, sitting there all glommed up, you know, looking in this little bowl, one eye trying to kind of... But we're eating a meal, and we're aware of the spaciousness around that meal. Space in there. It's just about I, me, and mine. There's space. Whatever comes forward is an ease. Before we have some experience, some taste of this, all of our activity is all so, so reactive and so centered around, you know, I, me, and my. How am I going to survive? And I gotta, I'm going to express some fixed view, you know. It's good for you, you should do this, according to my view. When we begin to touch and have some awareness of the spaciousness of our own being, <clears throat> we can hold that spaciousness and then that infuses whatever we do. It, it's part of whatever we do. We can deal directly with things, not as some small, hard rock, but as an awareness of, oh yeah, my life and your life, they're interpenetrated. They both have a common denominator of dukkha. They both have a common denominator of challenge. They both have a common denominator of the aspiration for freedom. Oh yeah, been there, know that. It is the simultaneity, simultaneity of holding a big view, an absolute view, and the small view simultaneously, where it gets really interesting. We can't just say they're at the same. Oh yes, you know, relative and absolute, here they are, okay. Been there, done that. We can't say they're just the same, because then we can just say, well, okay, everything is like that, so what's the point? On the other hand, we can't say they're different because the, the, the vast view infuses the small view. The small view does not necessarily infuse the vast view. So our task as we continue is to hold on to the sense of spaciousness or freedom that we may have inside <coughs> 
permanence, all the different ways that I'm, I'm trying to mention lots of different ways that I've heard. And pay the bills. That we are aware that all the words are transient, but the effects are long. Everything is impermanent, but has consequences. That everything is ephemeral and fleeting, but if a rock hits you, it's going to hurt. We hold those two things. So then, our task come, becomes to reveal the Dharma whatever we're doing. To reveal the Dharma as we're putting up drywall, as we're painting, as we're cleaning, as we're raking. To reveal the Dharma. And we reveal the Dharma not by the thing, but by the awareness that we hold that comes through the thing. We if we have a sense of the sacredness of life, then that sacredness has to be also expressed in how we sweep the kitchen. If we have a sense of the great mystery that everything arises out of nowhere, that great mystery also has to be reveled in as we sew cushions, as we rake the leaves. So the larger our view, the more important it is that that view and our ordinary life are not two things, but the ordinary life expresses so it requires and requires a little glimpse and it's practicing with that glimpse and becoming really familiar with that being able to rest in it, having it become so much a part of us that we can uh, automatically rest in it, that it becomes part where we don't even have to think about it. But when we're first really working with this, we have to both both have the confidence that as we're doing Zazen, as we touch these places, of freedom in ourselves or insight in ourselves, we cultivate that truth, not the experience, because the experience fades, but the truth that's revealed. We keep holding moment to moment to moment. We then bring it into our lives. So some people teach the Dharma by fixing cars. And some people teach the Dharma by planting trees. And some people teach the Dharma by working in the kitchen. And some people teach the Dharma by sitting up on a big seat. There is no difference. There is no difference. The Dharma is revealed not by words. If it was revealed by words, all of these magnificent, beautiful words of the Tibetan tradition and the other Buddhist traditions would have enlightened all of us long ago. The Dharma is revealed by our state of mind, our ability to hold spaciousness, to hold presence, to hold the respect, to hold the sacredness, 
of this life as we do our particular tasks. No, that's all not, that's, that's not it. That's not all of it either. So how do we do that, though? What's the essence of how we do that? The essence of how we do that is by paying attention. So I say, look at the floor. Pay attention. Feel the breath. Pay attention. Pay attention. It is through attention that the Dharma is revealed. There's a very famous story of someone who had a nice scroll and they went to a, 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 a Dharma teacher in Japan or China and said, here, write something on this scroll. And the teacher just wrote, attention. Said, That's all? It's kind of boring. Write something more profound. Attention. That's it? That's all you can think of? So they wrote a third time. Attention. Attention, attention, attention. Attention, attention, attention is how we present the Dharma. How we live the Dharma. How the Dharma comes through our hands, our mouth, our body. And we can't just say there's this abstract thing called attention out there. It's not. There's not this thing called attention in our life. And I will just be kind of messing around in my head being attentive. And there's my life out there. Attention is how we put our shoes. Do we, do we take the wheelbarrows out of the path of people? Do we clean the kitchen meticulously? Do we you know, carefully watch and see, is there some pile of mess that is causing problems with others? That the way the Dharma is revealed is not only do we look at and have experience and know the spaciousness of mind, but we also express it through our attentiveness to those things which will serve, help, benefit others. It's not some enlightenment experience you have sitting in the zendo, and you may have a profound one, but unless it is manifest in a way that serves, helps, benefits others, It's still a dead understanding. And we can benefit others at many different levels. I mean, just getting our shoes out of the way so somebody doesn't trip on them is one way of benefiting others. Noticing a big muddy spot and cleaning it up so that somebody doesn't slip is a way of benefiting others. Noticing that we, where we put things so we don't just drop them not only leaving a mess for us to clean up later on, but also we forget where they dropped them. Spent half the morning trying to find them again. Really being attentive to what we are doing for the sake of, you know, there's some, some effect on our, our life, of course. But as an offering, it is this particular emphasis that the Zen school has which is, <clears throat> I feel, quite admirable. Not only is it important to look directly at your experience to have deep understanding, but it has to be expressed concretely. Concretely. 
helping others. Now, some people are called to go out and work with homeless or go to involve with the Red Cross or go to missions to Africa or Syria or wherever. And some people are called to take care of lost pets or to raise children or take care of trees. We each have our particular area, things that we are called to do. And if we're not doing what we are called to do, something is really wrong. If we're not expressing the Dharma in the way that we have an opportunity to express the Dharma, it shrivels up in our life. So if you express the Dharma through movement, there are people in this room who can barely move. That's not their main way of expressing the Dharma. There are people here who are enormously graceful. Who express the Dharma through movement. Who express the Dharma through music. Who express the Dharma through words. But we don't all express the Dharma the same way. So we hold the biggest view possible inside. And on the outside, we act in the most meticulous way possible. The biggest view inside, the most meticulous way outside. So, again, I love this, this Travagiana language. It's so eloquent and so magnificent. But it does give you that feeling that there's something else out there. You could just get there. So it is our ordinary daily life doing whatever we are called to do is our place of practice, our place to teach, and our place to reveal the Dharma. And going around our routine life with a dull, you know, oh yeah, I've been there, done that kind of mood, it's not enlivening, it's not Dharma practice, and it certainly does not teach others. So, the spacious mind. Alertness. Doing a routine task with a spacious mind, really alert, it becomes a creative activity. It becomes a way of offering respect. It becomes part of our relationship to ourselves and the world of things. Partly, it gives life. We can kill, we can give life. We do that by our vivid attention or ignorance. So let's reflect on this a little bit with uh, the next case and the transmission of the light, Shanavasa, fourth case. Shanavasa asked Ananda, what is the fundamental uncreated essence of all things? What is the fundamental uncreated essence of all things? Well, we've asked that in lots of different ways. What is it before words? Where were you before you were born? What is the what is all things? Where do all things come from? What is the fundamental uncreated essence of all things? Ananda pointed to a corner of Shanavasa's robe. Pointed to a corner. 
Shanavasa asked again, what is the fundamental, what is the basic essence of the enlightenment of the Buddhas? The basic essence, the essence of the enlightenment of the Buddhas. And Nanda pointed again to the corner of his robe. And then Nanda grabbed his robe and tugged on it. According to the story, Shanavasa had a deep insight. You know, we think of things, these, these kind of stories, they can be so um, alien, or they can be really just simple, direct. What is the essence of the Buddha's teaching? Put your attention to that right now. It's the essence of the Buddha's awakening. Put your attention on right now. The experience of this and your attention are not two things. The uncreated is expressed right here. Everything comes from the same source. As we said, talked about some other day ago, Nanda kept thinking there was something else that was transmitted. Other than the Buddha's robe, what was transmitted when you had, when you received Dharma transmission, what was given to you? Keep thinking there's something else, something else, something out there. Right? Just get the thing out there. But here's a, a teaching that says, no, this close. The essence of the Buddha's teaching, this close. This close. So intimate. In this world, our clothing is perhaps the most intimate thing. Perhaps food becomes more intimate, but becomes so intimate we don't even know it. Clothing is so intimate. To actually realize what's right in front of us. To actually penetrate what's right in front of us. Where the Buddha Dharma is found, where the truth is found. Look at the experience of your own breath. That direct, that intimate, that present. One of one of Kazan Zenji's uh, part of his Taisho on this is even though he understood this, Shanavasa went on to ask, what is the fundamental essence of enlightenment of the Buddhas? Kazan says, although there has never been any mistake in this, unless you find out that you have it, you will be uselessly hindered by your eyes. That's why Shanavasa asked this question, to clarify the source of all Buddhas. It's not a matter of looking at something. It's not the source. It's the intimate. Responding to the call, Ananda deliberately tugged on Shanavasa's vest to let him know that the Buddha came out in response to the search for them. 
Srinivasa was greatly enlightened. The fact that we come to Sashin and that we sit, and it's not easy to do this. You know, everybody here is very, very strong. It's an admirable um, courage and strength to be able to do Sashin. I was thinking at the beginning of a of the day, if you took just a random hundred people from in this United States, you say, okay, we're going to sit down and look at the nature of our own mind for a week. You know? There would not be many takers. You know, no TV, no internet, no alcohol, you know, you know, all those different things. That that right there just eliminates seventy-five percent of people. And then of course just the the challenge of actually sitting and then the challenge of learning to actually concentrate, the challenge of letting go of all those stories. You took a random hundred people, you might get a quarter of a person <laughs> or less who could actually do this. So the fact that there is a group of people that you are interested in going through this particular challenge for the purpose of seeing the essence of your own being is astounding. Moving. The Buddha Dharma is revealed as we search for it. It's not as though it's not always there, but somehow our looking, our turning our attention, our investigation at ever more deeper and intimate levels is exactly what reveals As you all know from your own experience, you always say, you know, hear from one of the basic meditation instructions, sit down and pay attention to your breath. But you know that when you're actually looking at the breath and you look at it for longer and longer, you look at it more and more closely and you figure out, oh, the breath doesn't have a particular location and you realize, oh, the breath really is, you know, I don't actually feel that much air, it's actually moving in my body and you look at the whole body is moving and you really look more and more closely at the breath, different things, different aspects, different truths are revealed in that looking, in that investigation, in putting our attention there. The profound dharma is always, of course, present. Nothing but it. But it is revealed to us as we put our body and mind in position to look to reflect, to see. Not necessarily to cogitate, not necessarily because we have, you know, kind of read enough books that we can put it all in the right boxes, but that we have looked directly, looked directly, looked directly, looked intimately. And of course, everybody here, and of course, lots of other people who've done retreats, has looked intimately at their own being. And the more we look intimately at our own being, different things are revealed to us. It's not as though there's something that new that comes along, but it is the looking itself, the attention itself, the alertness itself. So, it's the case in this particular koan too. Although that which was, had, never has been born 
although that which never has been off is like this. You cannot ever realize that it is your own wisdom mother of all Buddhas unless you come across it once. sound right in my my ears, but what it, obviously what it means is things may be this way, may be whole and complete, lacking nothing, but unless we actually taste it, it doesn't mean anything to us. And of course, a number of people here have come in and said, oh, I've heard this over and over and over again, and yet now I had a little taste of it. It makes all the difference. And that taste comes because not be not because that taste comes as a byproduct of our assiduous practice of attention. It's not a one-to-one relationship. I do this right, I get this. I do it this way, I'll get that. But if we are practicing assiduously and attentively, holding our mind on what is present, interesting things are revealed. Interesting experiences come. You don't know exactly what it's going to be. Big, small, boring, interesting, profound. Who knows? It's all a byproduct of our steady, 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 steady investigation of looking. Zen study demands that you investigate and awaken on your own. After awakening, you should meet others who are also engaged in enlightenment. That is, we, ha- we need a sangha. Otherwise, we just begin to reflect on our own mind, our own mind, our own experience without, without the reality of other people and the reality of relating to other people and the reality of presenting our understanding and giving feedback to other people. It just becomes a self-perpetuating uh, positive feedback loop of our own delusion. It should be clear from this story of Chanavasa that you should not waste your life. You should not just be a spontaneous naturalist. You should not prefer your idea of yourself or your former views. You may think that the Buddhist Zen is just for special people and that you are not fit for it, but such ideas are the worst kind of folly. Who among the ancients was not a mortal? Whose personality was not influenced by social and material values? Once they studied Zen, however, they penetrated all the way through. Shantideva, in the way of the Bodhisattva, says that sometimes it's better to have never started down this path than to to start down it and try to stop. All of us have started down this path. And all of us, because we have started down this path and because we've had our own direct experience, have some true sense of what is possible. Have heard about it, may have tasted it. And after we have some true sense of what is possible, 
and then we turn our back consciously away from that. It is a, an obstacle which is very, very hard to overcome again. Not only is there regret and doubt, but that which we were seeking in our mind becomes contaminated in a way. And there are realms where people run from the Dharma. They run from these truths. Even though the truth says you, everything is marvelous, you're a, you're a miracle of the whole universe. But there are people whose states of mind is so confused, they run. So now that we have started on this path, now that we understand something of this practice, now that we have all tasted something, in a way we're all committed. We're all committed. There is no going back. And the Buddha says that once you have started on this path, once you have committed to the practice of embodied awareness and being a benefit to others, your complete enlightenment is inevitable. Your complete enlightenment is inevitable. Kind of nice. But it may be inevitable, but it's some difficult dark nights to go through. Roshi once told me, he said, anybody can like good food. Anybody. Anybody can like something that's nice and sweet and goes down easily. But it takes a very deep and rich and mature person to be able to like bitter food takes a very rich and deep person to be able to like something that's broken, something that's hard, something that grates, something that's got friction. From the perspective of one mind, of course, everything is included. But from the perspective of our little self, we would just as soon have nice, you know, soft beds, warm blankets, people feeding us sometimes. It is a mature person who begins to appreciate the difficulties of the path. It is a mature person who appreciates that there are good things and bad things, easy things and hard things, and they all are the teaching of the Dharma. They all are the place of practice of the Dharma. It is a mature person who can appreciate the finest quality of things, and also can appreciate that the rough and crude come from the same source. And they're teaching us different things. It's easy to like the sweet, hard to like the bitter. And yet, sometimes we get that. Everything is trying to teach us. Everything is calling to us. It's all calling for our awareness, our curiosity, our awareness. So as we... One last thing before. As I've mentioned a couple of times, there is a 
we haven't talked about the essential Dharma teaching of we have to learn to control the wild elephant of our mind. We have to learn to rein in the wild horse of our own cascading thoughts. That it is useful like a tool, be able to pick up a a tool and use it, but if you have a drill and you have to go around with it all the time in your hand, you're trying to eat with the drill in your hand, and you're trying to you know, cook with the drill in your hand, it becomes a big obstacle. If you could pick it up, use it, put it down, it's a great boon. But when it's stuck to you, it becomes a liability. Well, thinking is the same way. Thinking is a great boon. It's wonderful, wonderful. It's one of the beautiful human attributes. But when we are stuck, it's stuck on automatic, it's stuck like a car that suddenly has gone out of control and is speeding down the freeway with no brakes, it is not helpful. There is a time, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about focusing, focusing, concentrating, concentrating, coming back. But it also means restrain the mind consciously, turn away from thinking. Consciously, don't follow that idea. Not as an ultimate truth. This is not, you know, if, if I just become a zombie, if I just become an idiot, then I'll become greatly enlightened, you know? That's not worth much. But as a tool, as a tool to see something beyond words. Part of the reason that we ask people to come to Sashin and not to read and write is so that we give them a little bit of space from the incessant cascade, the flood of thinking and words that we are all so deeply enmeshed in. So, especially now, when you notice the mind revving up and getting ready to start thinking about what's going to happen you know, six years from now, consciously and deliberately say, you know, not now. You can have a think fest for days afterwards. But if you actually want to, to penetrate into the Dharma, there is a certain truth that is revealed only through a quiet mind. Now, we're not machines. So obviously, you know, you don't just sort of click it off and suddenly you're a machine and you, it's all silent. But the, the knowing that there is a place that is always quiet, the knowing that regardless of how crazy our life is, we can always go back to the place of deep silence is very much worth knowing. So during Sashen, we're trying to set up the conditions so that we become really familiar with the place of deep silence. And then periodically, life gets overwhelming, we've got too many things to do, and too many people are asking too much of us. And we respond, and we do everything we do, and then we can turn it off. That's a wonderful skill. Gives us a great deal of strength, a great deal of resilience. So please, especially at this stage of the session, consciously, intentionally, don't let your mind go wandering off and you follow it. Let your mind wander off, but you don't follow it. You stay right where you are.
as always, have great confidence. Nothing is lacking. All of the materials for a Buddha are breathing you. Have deep faith.